On this episode, I'm in the room with Adam Griffin discussing he and Matt Chandler's new book, Family Discipleship. Welcome to In the Room, episode number 79. I'm your host, Ryan Hughley, and for those of you joining me for the first time, I'm the founding and lead pastor of Ridgeline Church in Salt Lake City, Utah, and the author of Eight Hours or Less, Writing Faithful Sermons Faster. Today, I'm talking with author and pastor Adam Griffin. Adam is the lead pastor of Eastside Community Church in East Dallas, Texas, and he's also co-authored a new book with Matt Chandler called Family Discipleship, Leading Your Home Through Time, Moments, and Milestones. Ever since I became a dad 12 years ago, I've I've always felt the weight of responsibility that comes along with knowing that God has called Tammy and I to love our kids in a way that directs them to Him. And so as a result, I immediately began reading book after book on the subject of parenting, and some of them were helpful and some of them less so. But the unfortunate byproduct of all that reading was it left me feeling more and more overwhelmed by everything I wasn't doing, but someone else was saying I should be. And this is why I'm so thankful for this new book, Family Discipleship. It wisely weaves the work of discipleship into everyday life. And so in this conversation, Adam and I discuss his story. We talk about pastoring during a pandemic, as well as the importance of capitalizing on these three things, time, moments, and milestones as we raise our kids. So regardless of whether or not you're a worn out parent or you aspire to have kids one day, I'm confident that you're going to find both this book and this conversation helpful. So to that end, I want to invite you in the room for my conversation with Adam Griffin. Well, Adam, thanks so much for taking time to come uh, on In the Room today. I appreciate it a lot. Looking forward to talking about your new book, Family Discipleship. Uh, but before that, especially since we don't know each other, I'd love to just get to know you a bit. So tell me about, uh, just to start, where you're from originally. Well, I grew up a little bit north of Chicago, which I guess you spent oh, time Oh, really? With. I grew up in Milwaukee. Oh, yeah. nice. Yeah. Well, small towns around Milwaukee, but I went to high school in Milwaukee and college just north of Milwaukee and okay. did that um, until 2003 and moved to Texas. But Okay. How did that move happen for you? I took a job as a youth minister right out of college down okay. here in Flower Mound, Flower Mound, Texas, just north okay. of Dallas. So did you grow up in a Christian home? I did. My dad is actually a Lutheran pastor. My brother is a Lutheran pastor. A bunch of my uncles and cousins are Lutheran pastors. So Wow. I'm not Lutheran, but uh, I am a pastor. And so it's kind of the family business. I guess. So my guess is as a result that you are still a pastor growing up in that environment was a positive one for you. Uh, Yeah. Uh, There's a lot of positive things to say about my family. I love my parents. I love my siblings. We're a little bit spread out all over the place. My, my parents are still in Wisconsin. I have a brother in Colorado and a brother in Minnesota and I'm down here in Dallas, but I love my family. What would you say are two of the biggest thing or the biggest things that your mom and dad imprinted on you that you walked away with? The biggest things my mom and dad imprinted on me. I mean, yeah. I, I grew up uh, not missing church and I went to Christian private school. And so the, the emphasis on faith formation was significant for me. And while culture has shifted and culture has changed and my family is not like the family I grew up in and my kids are not like I was, Mm -hmm. thank God. I think uh, my parents showed incredible prayerfulness and faithfulness and wanting to see me walk with Christ as well. 
Okay. How did you end up, like, did you know then from a pretty young age that you were headed into being a pastor or did that come later in life? Man, I did not want to be a pastor. I didn't want to plant a church. I didn't want to be a lead pastor. I didn't want to be a youth minister. I didn't know what youth ministry was coming out of college. I had studied secondary education and wanted to be a teacher. I taught uh, public schools for three years here in Dallas and and loved teaching. That's what I really thought I was going to end up doing. But every step of the way, including a writing career, were things that um, maybe in my mind, I thought, man, that would be neat. But I didn't pursue uh, it was very obvious the Lord pursued me in some ways to to offer some things and invite me into things that I otherwise would not have pursued and would not have invited. And so God was very gracious to bring me into ministry and to have uh, me pastor this church. And I love it, but it is not something I would have drawn up any step of the way I wouldn't have picked it. So talk me through then what what has your ministry, what have, you, what have your steps been? You came out of college. Where did you go to college? I went to a college called Concordia University oh, in Macon, yeah. Wisconsin. It's, I played uh, football at Trinity and uh, in Chicago. We played Concordia and nice. got pretty seriously destroyed. Uh, oh, yeah, it was not. It was not fun. So I don't have super fun feelings toward Concordia, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so you did undergrad there. What'd you study? I did. Yeah, I did undergrad there. I was a Concordia Falcon. I studied okay. secondary education history and minored in theology and minored in youth ministry. Awesome. And then graduated and took a job in uh, Flower Mound, like I said, just outside of Dallas with uh, the pastor of the church that I took a job with had been a professor and the campus pastor at Concordia. And so I knew oh, him cool. from there. And so he brought me down here and I've been in the Metroplex ever since. And so you it. were so you were a youth pastor. Were you also teaching in public school at the same time or when did that happen? No, that's a good question. About six years into student ministry, I made a transition. I had been doing student ministry at, at a church in Flower Mound and had done uh, Young Life as well and not on staff, but volunteered in Young Life. And then uh, the principal at one of the schools I was doing a lot of ministry at offered me a job knowing that my background was teaching. He had a job within the public school that he said was kind of like a youth ministry job it was for kids that were not doing well in school, but it was because of social reasons, not because of academic reasons. Maybe they missed because they were in a juvenile delinquency program, or maybe they had been very, very sick, or some of their family had been very, very sick. And so they were trying to catch back up with kids their own age. Okay. And so he offered me that position. And I took that and I loved teaching English and history to students. I led more kids to Christ as a public school teacher than I did as a youth pastor. You know, they had me hour and a half a day, five days a week and yeah. a small group. And I absolutely loved it. That's awesome. So how was your next step from there? I know at one point, I think you were pastor of spiritual formation at the village. Is that yeah. right? Did you go from public school to that? Yes, that's exactly right. So uh, we were attending the village and I was discipling kids through the village. And uh, my wife and I were part of the Dallas campus of the village, which was pretty new at the time. Uh-huh. And um, Steve Harden, who was the pastor there, who I absolutely love. He's just one of the greatest men I've ever met in my life. He came to me one day and said, I would love for you to consider coming on and overseeing ministry to public schools and our family ministry. And that's really what led into family discipleship was then meetings with that staff when I first accepted that position and started there. And then uh, quickly moved from that position into kind of an executive role at that campus that they called spiritual formation, where I got to oversee much of uh, the ministry of the Dallas campus and did that for about six years before the Lord called us to to plant our, our own autonomous church over here on the east side of Dallas where, where I live, uh, that now we call Eastside Community Church. We've been doing that for about two years. So okay. every step of the way, the Lord has kind of pushed me and invited me and prodded yeah. me into something new that I didn't see coming, but I've loved it. Tell me about that 
you mentioned uh, your role having something to do with uh, ministry to public schools. What did that consist? That's I've never heard of that in a church before, and it sounds awesome. What did that consist of? Man, it was great. So part of it was my background was public school teaching and student right. ministry, and you know I have a heart for family discipleship, obviously. Yep. And so the they uh, the building of the church that I was a part of was right across the street from a public high school, middle school, and elementary school, like directly across the street. And we had some good relationships with those principals, but I came in to to bring those from just kind of like well, got our foot in the door to ongoing increased relationship where we could really serve those schools. So sat on boards at those schools to think about how our community could help. And then uh, had service opportunities there to serve kids. Most of those, uh, most of the student body of the schools were first generation immigrant from Latin America. So a lot of their parents did not speak English and many of their parents were not citizens. And so in order to have advocacy in the city of Dallas, it was really beneficial to have a group of people right across the street who were happy to help and serve and not just in a white savior way, but in a mentality of like, how do we partner and how do we have friendships and how do we build relationships? And, and, and that's the neighborhood that church is in. It's largely a first generation immigrant. And so that was our desire to do. So I got to oversee that ministry as awesome. well. I love doing and was ready to do as a, I still talk to those principals and, and those relationships there. And uh, having just come from being a public school teacher, it was a very easy transition into ministry. Yeah. I love that. Again. It's a great role. So you've been, so your church now, what's the name of your church now? It's called Eastside Community Church. Eastside Community Church. You guys are two years old. So you're almost the exact same age as Ridgeline, the church I pastor here in Salt Lake. So tell me about how's COVID been? Well, COVID. Yeah. I've heard of that. Yeah. Uh, Just a bit. (laughs) What what is it? What are you guys, do you own your, are you in your own space? You're in a rented space. So you've been all online. What's it, how, what's it been like for you to lead a two-year-old church through this? Well, we've been meeting, uh, we had been meeting in the auditorium of a public high school in, yep. a, in a densely refugee populated part of our city, which we loved. And we love the principal and the administration there and the relationships we have there. And those are ongoing and that's been great, but they're still not in session. They're not going to be in session for another month. And there's no end in sight to their prohibition to renting out to people at this point. So we've not been in there. We have a relationship with another church in town that is going to allow us to start using their building on Sunday afternoons here next month in September. But outside of one weekend and some other events, we've been online since early March. Yeah. How is your, I'm curious to hear what other pastors experiences have been, but when you've stayed connected to people in your church, how, what, what are your observations about the impact of this pandemic and I mean the other host of issues that are uh, so central in culture right now. How do you feel like people are doing? Well, man, it's very significant. We actually just did another kind of member check-in with our group, and there's some people that have been really depressed, some people mm-hmm. feeling very anxious, some people. And the book is timely because it's really a lot of people getting extra family time, which is yeah. great, and there's been some benefits to that. But those people who are single in our church, which is about a third of our church. Some of those people who live alone, this has been an extremely difficult time during quarantine. Totally. Uh, people who are working from home suddenly telecommuting can be very difficult to balance the fact that childcare basically went out the window for them. But at the same time, they're expected to uh, be working the same amount of hours in front of a screen. And so that's been difficult. Uh, I think ministry in general, a lot of the ministries that we're involved in are one-on-one time with kids or with uh, mentor relationships and, and with refugees and where you cannot have interpersonal contact has meant, meant a lot of the normal relationships that we're building and, and, and that we're cultivating have not been happening the way we want to. It's more been in the home focus. And, okay. and so that's been really difficult for us. What's that been like for you guys? 
Yeah, similar. I mean, we meet in a community college auditorium and uh, we had to shut down in March like everybody else. In God's Providence, two weeks before that, we had moved into a ministry center. Um, So we have some office space and also uh, a meeting space downstairs that if we didn't have to worry about any social distancing stuff, we could probably get 80 people in pretty comfortably. Um, we've gotten to the point now as things have loosened here in Utah a little bit, we can get 30 safely spaced. And so we're doing like two micro services on Sunday mornings and then online as well. And as people continue to come back, we'll continue to add, but it looks like because we meet in a public space, it's not churches have been green lit to meet here, but because we don't have a building to be able to do that, we're at the mercy of whatever, like the governor sets that number at. And so right now it's 50 and there's not a whole lot more we can do inside of that. So we're pretty settled into this is what our rhythm is going to be, at least for Sunday morning worship through the end of the year. Um, But yeah, man, in general, I think the bell I've been ringing with everyone is no one's doing awesome. You know, I don't feel like anyone is, there are very few people that really are thriving uh, through this season. And so it's been uh, a lot of conversations about that and a lot of trying to keep tabs on people's emotional health through the whole thing. And so it's been a bear for sure. You know, it'd be one thing if it was just the pandemic, but I think everything else that's been going on as well has definitely made for a very complicated season to pastor through. Yeah, I had a, sure. a long conversation with some of our young single guys last night. We do a regular discipleship meeting at my house typically, but last night mm-hmm. it was on Zoom. And we just talked about how politics uh, has exacerbated so much else, but how everything is so divisive right now, yeah. whether it's uh, racial tensions or whether it's uh, the pandemic or whether it's just the election year. Totally. It seems like uh, depending on your background or your your party affiliation or whatever, you have to make certain decisions about everything in order to be uh, divisive and disagreeing and upset. And yeah. at the same time, there's some things coming to the surface that I I'm appreciate and I'm glad for, but I don't like playing politics and I, yeah. don't, I don't want to be a church that, that takes a, 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 a party platform and makes it our own, but rather pointing our people to scripture and, and helping people understand why do Christians vote and how do we decide how we vote and yeah. how do Christians think about race and why do we, why do we think that way about race? Those are hard yeah. things to do when you're not even meeting in person. Totally. Yeah. yeah. It's been interesting to watch the way too that some of the physical separation that we've had, has um, really taken a toll on on trust in relationship as well. And so I've noticed that when, um, thankfully, we are back together in this different form physically, which I think is really helpful. But even just those like two, three, four, five minute interactions on the front and back end of services, I really underestimated how far that goes in really developing a trusting relationship with church members who are listening to you preach and, um, and then with in relationship with one another. So yeah, man, it's been, it's been an adventure for sure. All all things considered, I I feel blessed, you know, for where we are. I'm not looking to quit ministry. So I feel like that's a win and, um, and by and large, we're, we're kind of wading through it together. So it's been good. Fantastic. That's good. That's optimistic. Yeah. So I, I do want to, I think this is a great place for us to, to start to talk about the, your book, Family Discipleship, um, especially, so I, where I want to start is I want to start a little bit on the emotional front, 
uh, before we kind of get into some of the specifics, because especially right now, as you mentioned, so many parents are feeling so overwhelmed and wiped out in that many of them have been trying to balance both doing their jobs and homeschooling. You know, we have more homeschooling happening than like I never wanted to homeschool in the first place, much less be forced into it. So parents are struggling in the midst of that. And, but that's also why I really love the intent behind your book. Um, Cause as I was reading it again, I love, there's a point in the introduction where you guys write, if your family already feels overloaded, this plan will not push you over the edge with new burdensome list of obligations, but rather develop a strategy that helps easily weave in everyday ways for your family to worship God and talk about the gospel of Jesus. So I love that because many books on parenting in general feel very burdensome. Uh, when you read them. So before we jump into the specifics, what would you say to parents right now at the outset that are feeling overwhelmed by or insecure about the task of discipling their kids in addition to the host of other responsibilities that they're carrying right now? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's so easy to feel discouraged and overburdened because there is such a weight of responsibility in being a parent and you love your kids so much. So right. you don't want to mess it up. Right. And like I think every parent gets that. It is very difficult. And there's a lot of uh, ways in our society that we feel anxious or we feel out of control and you want to be able to control a human being and turn them into who you want, but yep. you can't. They are independent. They're their own self. And on top of that, you have all these pressures to be like Instagram perfect. You just right. have to uh, look like the family who is having the most fun and is the most Christian or the most whatever. Yeah. And because of those pressures, it's very easy to disappoint yourself and to feel discouraged. And in addition, there's the re very real realities of how busy we are. Mm -hmm. We have busied ourselves with activities and schooling. And I know that COVID has been a reminder that all these activities are not necessary to life. Like for a lot of people, their sports are canceled and their school was canceled and, and work in some ways was canceled. And it's a reminder of what is essential. That's so what good. the book is about and what I'd love to encourage parents in is there is something essential worth even uh, canceling other things in your life if, it, if, it, if that's what it takes. But it's not, uh, it doesn't, it's not as drastic as that in order to start discipling your kids, but it is a priority worth realigning all the rest of your priorities which is communicating to your kids what is true and eternal, not just what is temporal for baseball season or for third grade or sixth grade or whatever. This is forever for your kids. Yeah. And so that can feel extra weighty. So it can feel extra easy to be discouraged because then your kids are going to resist it or there's going to be kind of a, a persistent uh, idea that this is something against them. But that's why in the book we talk about, man, make this so normal and ordinary and intertwined into what you do. And, and that is going to benefit you and your family. And we also try to help every family see that really you can do this. This is your role. It's not that there's some other parents who are better at this. This is your kid. And yeah. God has given you this kid. And so yeah. this is your responsibility, not mine, not the author of the book, not yours, not the pastor. It's you, the parent, like whoever your kids are, this is your role. And because we know who our God is and what he is like and his ability to empower us, then we can walk into this role with a ton of confidence and That's a good. ton of optimism. Because our God is merciful when we mess up. And our yeah. God is steadfast when it gets hard. And that's what we're called to be as parents as well, as diligent. We don't give up. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy. But we can absolutely do this recognizing who Christ is and what his role is in his union with us to accomplish what he's called us to, to lead our, Christ, or lead our kids to follow him. 
I love that. That's good. Rather than just assume everybody knows exactly what we're talking about or what we mean when we uh, mention discipling our kids or family discipleship, why don't you just explain a little bit of, of what that is in your mind and is in the book and why it's so critical? Yeah, family discipleship is is a biblical call. It's something we see in the Bible that's the role of parents. And you see it over and over and over again. It's it's the call on one generation to tell one the next generation what God has already done and accomplished, who he is, like what are his characteristics, and what does it look like to follow him? What are, what are the um, characteristics of God that we can walk in? What is godly character? And so family discipleship, the, the simple definition we give is that it's the spiritual leadership of your home. And we define that as the important and mostly ordinary spiritual leadership of your Love home. That. So if you think about all the th- responsibilities you have as a parent to care for your kid physically, you can come up with a list really easily. We got to feed them. We got to clothe them. We got to uh, uh, give them a place to stay. And then you think about the intellectual things for your kids. You think we're going to educate them. We're going to make sure they do their homework. We're going to challenge them. So we're talking about spiritual leadership, which is very similar to both. It's what are you giving your kids? What are you teaching your kids? What are they learning? But also uh, not just facts and not just behaviors, but you're aiming at their heart to say, what do you want them to believe? What do you want them to trust? What do you want them to know? And for family discipleship, for Christians, that is above all else. It's the, it's the um, Great Commission. It's Matthew 28. We're going to teach our kids to obey everything Christ commanded him, commanded his disciples and commands us. Mm-hmm. And so that's the great commission to make disciples. And that applies just as aptly to our families as to anybody else you might meet on this planet. Yeah. And that's a parent's role. I think one thing that's so great about that too, is there are so many stay at home parents who feel as though because they're not in the workplace, they're not in the mission field and overlook oftentimes the fact that if you have kids, God's given you little unsaved sinners <laughs> to raise and to make disciples of. And I think it's a really important way to bring signif- missional significance to what, what we do as parents as well. 100%. Yes. So I think there, there's some shift in this, I think probably for some people that did not maybe grow up in a family where this was common, if they're a first generation Christian and the idea of discipling their kids might feel very foreign because we assume that just bringing kids to church or maybe putting kids in a Christian school, I went to Christian school my whole life, that because we do those, those types of things, we are in fact doing the work of discipling our kids. But what you guys are talking about is very different. So speak to that a bit. And how would you describe what you think the ideal role is between the church and parents in the shepherding of their kids? Yeah, I think we, we live in a culture where uh, like the hired expert is very common. So if you we want your kid to play piano, you're going to hire a piano teacher. And you want your kid to play football, you maybe hire a coach. You want your kid right. to be good at math, you hire a tutor. And so it's, very, uh, it's a very logical small step to go from, well, if I want my kid to be a Christian, then I drop them off at a Christian program uh, with a Christian youth pastor or a Christian teacher, and they come back a Christian. And uh, the fact is that the scripture doesn't call us to outsource family discipleship. It calls us to lead in it. And that that the role of father and mother is a role that is called to lead their families. And church and school, these things can play a huge, a significant role in a kid's life. But we say in the book, nobody can hurt or help a kid like a parent can. That's good. And there is no position with more potential influence in a child's life than mom or dad. It is a very significant and important role, and it's irreplaceable. Like the school and the church cannot take the place 
of mom or dad. Now, there are parents that disqualify themselves from authority in a kid's life. Absolutely. And there are kids that are not, there are parents that are not the most influential person in a kid's life. That is certainly possible. But for the most part, if you ask anybody their story and you ask them to talk about who has uh, had the most effect on who they are today and what they believe, it's yeah. going to be parents. Yeah. And there's going to be mentors. There are going to be other significant relationships. And that's why working together as a church and family is going to be the best version of that. Because Sometimes in even well-meaning churches, we have churches that are doing one thing with discipleship with the next generation. And you have parents that are either doing nothing or doing their own thing because the church and the family are not working together to say, how are we going to disciple these kids together? Whether that's yeah. content or whether that's goals, whether that's the plan. But the best version of this is that the community of the believer and the community of the kid and the family of the kid are working together in order to, to accomplish something. And that obviously benefits single parent households, yeah. uh, spiritually orphaned kids who maybe they're believers, but their parents are not, or even uh, spiritually divided homes where one parent believes something and the other does not. Churches need to be ready to come alongside families and be the family of God for those kids. So what is that? Do you guys, what, tell me a little bit about how in your setting, especially because currently you're not in, you know, like a massive mega church any longer. What is that? What does it look like practically for you guys where you're pastoring now to do this work of partnering with families? Yeah, I think we have really clear language, which we okay. use in the book of time moments and milestones to talk about where we believe uh, families can disciple their kids. Really clear lines of delineation between what we do and what we hope parents are doing and what we're calling them to do. Uh, for me as the lead pastor and preacher, every week that I'm preaching, I'm writing up questions for home groups to talk through, but I'm also writing up ideas for families to walk through time, moments, and milestones based on where we're going as a church so that we can hopefully continue to use a kind of unifying language that unites us around the same mission. I think you'd be hard pressed to find an adult who's a parent at our church who didn't know my passion for family discipleship yeah. and the way that our church tries to equip parents for it, whether it's resources or whether it's forums where we bring in speakers or whether it's just the way that we do ministry week in and week out. And we also, when we were gathering one Sunday a month, we would have uh, an emphasis on family and family discipleship. And we would That's shut awesome. down all of our simultaneous next gen ministries, except for the littlest, littlest babies and bring them into, into worship in the big church setting with us to talk about with them uh, what mom and dad normally talk about, but also to give a special emphasis on uh, adults. This is something we'd call you to do. We tell stories about it. I mean, I could go on and on, but yeah. our church tries to find a lot of ways to make this a, a very high priority for us. It's part of our mission uh, values as a church. Love that, man. Uh, one of the things I, I really like, you guys use this phrase, righteously abnormal, when talking about the kids that we're trying to raise uh, as followers of Jesus. So maybe talk a little bit about why it's important for Christian parents to seek to raise these, quote, righteously abnormal kids who are different from, so not just from other kids, but from the culture that we all live in. Yeah, Matt, Matt and I are very passionate about this point in particular. I think this is really significant and it's an important point in the book. We make it a couple times. Just as you're discipling your kids, we are not just trying to make a good kid. We're not just trying to make it's a good. nice kid. We're not trying to form a well-behaved kid. We're trying to help a kid follow Christ no matter what everybody else around them is doing. 
And we live in a culture that is increasingly not only not following Christ, but is opposed to following Christ, for whom what we believe is increasingly not only weird or alienated, but maybe repulsive. And I want to raise my kids ready to follow Christ, even if the crowd is not. And so we talk about being righteously abnormal or the willingness to believe things that are irritating and not believe things in order to intentionally irritate other people, but rather to say, we're not going to compromise just because it does irritate someone. Yeah. And you know, the culture as well as I do as a pastor in Salt Lake city. I mean, obviously you're surrounded by other cultural ideas all the time. So you want your kid to know, and an important word to use is to be able to distinguish what is true from what is not. There's a lot of other religions and a lot of secularism that'll tell our kids what your parents taught you is bogus. What your parents taught you is ridiculous. And I want my kids ready and equipped to be righteously abnormally swimming upstream in a culture that is adrift from godliness. And so we think that's an important focus on family discipleship is preparedness to be different, awareness that people believe different things so that we're not just teaching our kids, hey, just believe whatever any adult tells you is true. We're teaching them what mommy and daddy are telling is true because the Bible is true. And anything that you hear, you need to examine it and compare it to what God has said in his word. Mom and dad can even be wrong, but the word of God is not going to pass away. Yeah, that's good, man. You know, one of my uh, earliest and most consistent memories growing up was, especially even through my teen years, was going into my mom and dad's room to say goodnight to my dad, because my dad always went to bed earlier than my mom, and then finding him in bed, and he was reading his Bible. And that really marked me. I mean, I genuinely, I don't have a memory of going to say goodnight to my dad when he was not in bed with his Bible. And it communicated to me um, how critical he believed that practice was in his life. And so talk a little bit about the example, the role of, of just a parent's example in the discipleship of their children. Cause I certainly know we'd agree on one way this can go really wrong is to teach all these things as true and then violate them in your own yeah. life and not actually live these things out. So talk about the importance of example and the significance in the formation of a kid through that. Yeah, we talk about, uh, we describe it as modeling in the book is the word we use is that we model our faith for our kids. And at the same time, no parent is called to fake it. We're not called to put on some false version of religiosity that we think is going to benefit our kids. But rather when we talk about modeling, uh, Matt talks about how in his own home, it's very similar to what you described in your dad's. It is his kids will find him in his Bible every day, every morning. And we talk about what that looks like. But we also talk about how modeling imperfection is important for our kids. Not that we intentionally make mistakes around them, but that we're not talking about being a perfect parent around your kids. We're talking about letting your kids see what it's like to be an imperfect person following a perfect God. So letting your kids see you make mistakes and then demonstrate repentance to them and in front of them and, and where you make mistakes. Man, that has a huge impact on a kid. And it helps undermine any of the beliefs of hypocrisy that might come from a parent who's always going to hide their mistakes or deny their mistakes. And so we want to be parents who are incredibly honest with our kids about our own struggles and repent fluently, like often to God and to those we sin against. And we're going to call our kids to the same thing. So we want to demonstrate that to them. But in in one sense, modeling is so impactful. And yet we (laughs) some kind of sometimes comically miss it. Like we'll yell at our kids to stop yelling at each other. Yeah. Or we will definitely done that. 
Yeah, we will, uh, we'll lose our patience while telling them to please be more patient. <laughs> and we'll do these kind of comical, ironic, even yeah. hypocritical things where we're going, maybe if I want my kid to be more patient, I should demonstrate more patience. Yeah, if I good. want my kid to not be whiny and complaining, maybe I should work on repenting when I complain in front of them yeah. and modeling for them what it looks like to put up with something difficult for as long as it takes. Yeah. And these are the kind of lessons that we can uh, be a little bit more intentional at uh, investing in our kids by thinking about how am I modeling that? Where do I need conviction in my own life? Where do I need to repent? And then how do I seek to, to demonstrate that for my kids? Yeah, that's so good. I mean, I, I know today my kids are 12, 10, and seven, and I don't think that anything has built more intimacy with them than apologizing to them when I've been wrong. And it's terribly, I mean, there's nothing more humbling, I don't think, than apologizing to like a five-year-old and trying to explain to them why you were wrong and how it's not okay. But I mean, especially with, you know, my middle son, every single time that I have to do that, he immediately breaks, you know, any hardness that he felt. Um, he usually cries. He's very, you can just see the way that it softens. And I think the lack of humility to, to do that, if I chose to harden to that and be like, well, he's a kid, it's not that big a deal. And to justify it away, um, it would, it would, negatively impact our relationship in such a significant and deep way, much less what it communicates to him. Yeah. And it's a good example too. I love that example. It's a good example of this is what the Lord would call us to do with one another right. as believers. But for some reason we make an exception often in our own home, yeah. like where you can have like unquestionable authority as dad. A yeah. lot of dads will be like, well, I'm not going to apologize to my son. I'm not going right. to offend him. But that's to not treat our sons and daughters like actual human beings. Right. Like, this is the way every Christian is called to interact with other humans, which is to apologize, to confess and to repent when we make mistakes. And so to do that with our kids is essential modeling behavior yeah. if we want to see that in them when they grow up. Yeah, totally. Well, you mentioned this just a minute ago, but the book is really um, outlined around the importance of capitalizing on time, moments, and milestones. This is the language that you guys use. So tell me a little bit about what those are and why each of those is important. Yeah. So starting with time, time is uh, we say it's kind of like a pointed time. It's designated time that you set aside in, in the week or every day or every month. Uh, that's for talking about or practicing the things of God, for talking about the gospel, for practicing the gospel. And that's really important to any family to say we have time that we have set aside as a family just for doing this because it is that important. Families do this for all sorts of things. You have time set aside to watch a football game or you have time set aside to go play a football game or you have yep. time set aside to eat together. So we're saying this is just as important, if not more so of all the other things. So what does it look like to set this time aside as well? And we talk about ways to weave time into what you're already doing. When is your family already gathered? Maybe it's on your commute. Maybe it's on your way to and from church even. Maybe it's your time at church together. Maybe it's your time around the dinner table or for me with young kids right now, it's when we put our kids to bed at night, we have designated family discipleship time and it's very ordinary and normal for us to do it to the point where if we did not, mm -hmm. my kids would ask, why are we not reading our Bible, praying and singing together? Because that's yeah. what we do every night. It's designated for that. And it's an essential part, we believe, of any leadership is to have, uh, spiritual leadership is to have designated time, just like a church would. And we've seen how difficult it is during COVID when a lot of churches totally. have not had designated gathering times and the eagerness to get back there. And you think about your family as a microcosm of that, have dedicated time where you're going to worship God together and teach all that Christ has taught us to obey. 
Then the second aspect is moments. Moments are kind of leveraging everyday opportunities that happen more sporadically as they come your way. And so we talk about a lot of ideas on how to maximize those, those moments, on how to leverage that time by equipping uh, readers with language to use or having unified language in a marriage, or scriptures to lean on. But really what you're trying to do is be really observant and think about instead of uh, just uh, disciplining your kids and say, well, I'm just going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to put you in timeout because of what you did. Think about how could that could also be a moment where you could communicate the truth of the gospel and grace and how God loves us. And if not just um, if uh, one of my kids came home from his first day of school this week and he was just weeping, he was so sad about uh, the, the COVID precautions and recess and his inability to make new friends. And I could just kind of comfort him and say, oh, buddy, it's going to get better, <laughs> which can be a very good parental instinct. But I took it as a family discipleship moment to tell him about the comfort of the Lord in difficult times, why God created us to want relationship, want to be around other people, why that is a good desire he has, and yet why we want to walk in wisdom when it comes to sickness and illness and protecting our neighbors. And, and so we, we leverage, and at the same time, I didn't stay up late the night before looking up scriptures going, hey, this right. is going to happen tomorrow, or next time my kids uh, act out of line, this is the way I'm going to handle it. At the same time, there can be some great preparedness. My wife and I can talk together about how do we want to speak about these kind of moments? So, for example, what we talked about earlier when it comes to teaching them not to follow the crowd, yeah. we're going to have a ton of opportunities that are going to be unplanned as we raise kids where our kids' desire is going to be to do something because other people like it, even though they knew they shouldn't. And so I want to be prepared with what scriptures will I lean on in that moment? What language will my family use in that time? And that's how we'll leverage it to share the gospel. And then lastly is milestones, which is, kind of like a, a, a more significant version of time and moments in the sense that some of them are planned mm -hmm. and some of them just happen. And it's a way of uh, celebrating or commemorating something significant that the Lord is doing in your child or in your family. And that could be something really great. It could be something like a, they graduated from something or finished yeah. something or accomplished something, or it could be something really difficult, like they lost something or were hurt by something. You think about your kid's first breakup. You think about the first time they lose a loved one. Those are spiritually significant milestones in a kid's life where it's going to be important for us as parents to be ready to point to the faithfulness of God. You think of anything that has an anniversary or a festival or an annual celebration, whether it's a birthday or Christmas or Easter or Thanksgiving, you think about how can I leverage these milestones in every, every kid's life in order to point to what's true about our God. And yeah. that's what we talk about with milestones. So that's time, moments, and milestones. And, and with modeling, that's what we call the, the framework. It's awesome. You know, my, my kids, I think about when we first started doing family discipleship with them, it looked like going through the big picture storybook Bible, I think was the first Bible we read through with them. And then as they got a little older, it was the Jesus storybook Bible. And so the way that this has looked, that it looks now when they're 12, 10, and seven is very different than when they were eight, six, and three. So what are some things that parents should like, especially if someone's listening who has young kids right now, what are some ways to think about how this is like, if I tried to sit down and do a big picture storybook Bible with my kids now, they would like boo me out of the room. So how, how should we try to prepare for how this is going to adjust and change and look different as they age and grow? Yeah. And I think not only for every age, but every kid is different. You know, totally. what makes one kid roll their eyes makes another kid super excited. And that, yep. 
and different stages, different phases, you know, and that's, that's going to be the truth our whole life long. But I think in general, you think of some very simple tenets where we talk about scripture, share, uh, uh, sing song and prayer. And, and so we'll incorporate some version. And while some families may not ever want to sing and I get that some yeah. version of, of reading together, of studying God's word together, of talking about what it means for our lives and in praying together is, is applicable no matter what your family looks like. Even if you have a brand new infant child that cannot, uh, it is illiterate, it cannot speak to you, it's got nothing. You can still spend hours of your day thinking yep. about how do I pray for this child? What am I praying for this child? Yep. And how do I read scripture and bless this child? What, yep. what scriptures will I choose today that apply to what I hope for this child? Yeah. And then as that kid grows, all the way to teenage years, where hopefully, if our kids are walking with the Lord, we're involving them in even some of the family discipleship plan of what do you want to do this summer that would serve other people? Or what do we want to do this month that as our family we could do together? How do we want to serve at church together? All the way to, hey, everybody, let's uh, have everybody read this chapter of the scripture before we get to dinner tonight, because I really want to talk to you about it. Uh, or what did you get from the sermon on Sunday? Let's talk about how that applies to our family. And certainly uh, as the kids get older, there's different versions and, and different kids will need different levels of um, uh, kind of forcefulness to it. I hate to say for, we're not forcing our faith into anyone, but different levels of, uh, of effort maybe based yeah. on uh, how old our kids are and what it looks like and, and how independent they are. And then some of us will have wayward children that we're still going to be praying for, even though they're rebelliously running from what we hoped for. Yeah. And so there's no point at which I would say, well, now that this kid, this human has graduated, no more than I would any parent. No parent yeah. has read enough of the Bible, read the Bible enough times or prayed enough times who would say, man, your spiritual life is settled and, right. and just go retire. You know, we're, yeah. we're not retiring from family discipleship. Right. Well, I think, I think the, the biggest compliment, at least coming from me, that's important to me. I think the highest compliment that I would uh, pay the book is at times I often find many marriage and parenting books very frustrating because of how uh, they take a model that works for one couple or one family and then prescribe it for everyone. And you guys have done such a great job of not just saying you don't want this to be burdensome, but creating uh, to stay at like the principal level to be able to make it accessible to everyone, regardless of your spiritual maturity, regardless of how many kids you are, how old they are, regardless of your own spiritual history, uh, anyone can take this and apply this. And so I think any family uh, will benefit from applying what it is that you guys have written about. And so I just want to say thanks as a parent for taking the time to do that. Cause I know writing a book is no small endeavor. That's true. And I appreciate that. I, that is definitely one of our main goals is that it would be helpful to everyone, whether you are a, a seminary graduated theologian or whether yep. you just became a believer. I think it's a framework that applies to really all versions of discipleship, but obviously in particular, this one are in, within our homes. Yeah. Well, I've been closing with uh, just a couple of rapid fire questions, I think, especially in light of what this year has been like for so many. So I'd love to hear just your answers to these. But uh, just in closing, what, what's something simple that is bringing you joy right now? Something simple that is bringing me joy right now. Uh, you know, what has uh, come out of our time with COVID is about six or seven months where my kids and I were together more often than not. And that means every minute of the day more often than not. Yeah. And I have three sons and what has brought me a ton of joy is seeing them become friends 
in a way that they had not when they were each going to their own separate classes at school every day, hanging out with their different aged friends. And so I have loved hearing the laughter coming from their room after I put them to bed at night where they they all share a room and they are just dying laughing with each other. And I hope that's lifelong. I hope that's lifelong memories, but it brings me a ton of joy. How old are your boys? I have an eight-year-old, a seven-year-old, and a five-year-old. Oh man, three kids under 10, three boys in the same room. I don't even know how they awesome. fall asleep at night. It's amazing. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. What's, uh, what's something that you've read or listened to recently that inspires you? Uh, you know what my favorite book uh, this year, Christian book is Gentle and Lowly. Oh yeah. I keep a, hearing that, man. It is so good. It just points out a lot of uh, things that you already read or have heard about Christ, but it shows you who Jesus is and what he is like towards those who are hurting and what he is like towards the sinner and what he is just, it's like reading a personality profile of your God. And I think it just helps you love Jesus in a way that is so accessible. Yeah. It's fantastic. Reading a personality profile in your God. If you did not get asked to write a blurb for that book, it was a massive mistake on their part. <laughs> Such a well, great description. I definitely did not get asked. That's good. <laughs> What's something maybe that you're working on or thinking through right now that has you excited and feeling alive? Oh, regathering as a church. We're thinking about that right now a lot. Um, you know, that uh, I also think a ton as it relates to this book, I think about the fruit that could come from a generation uh, like us who does have more involved dads as much as there are less um, present dads. I think there's an increase in father involvement in our generation. And I think about what if, what if those dads that do stick around, those ones we lead in our churches do disciple really well. And what if we see a generation that grows up kind of like you did, which is more rare that's saying, man, my dad read his Bible, loved his God, loved his wife. And I got to see that. And man, what a difference it could make to have a resilient group in the next generation of those who are following Christ. Love that, man. All right, last question. What's your best piece of advice to the average person living through the dumpster fire that is 2020? The best piece of advice to the average to the person. Average person. Not, 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 not just pastors, just average person living through 2020. What are you telling people in your church? What are you telling your friends? What's the best piece of advice you'd give? Well, as a pastor, I believe I'm, I'm less than an average person. I'm more <laughs> Uh, I think the best piece of advice I could give anybody right now outside of being diligent in the care of your own soul to follow mm-hmm. the Lord, which is Deuteronomy 4, is to be empathetic, to try to recognize what it so means good. to love your neighbor. And if your neighbor is really mad about the pandemic, if your neighbor's really mad about racial injustice, or if you're mad about either of those and they are not, to yeah. try to be empathetic and then humble, recognize your own sin, your own imperfection, and that maybe you're not right, but maybe we could disagree and still get along. And that would be great. Phenomenal. That's great advice. Well, Adam, thanks so much for taking time to chat today. Uh, pumped about the book. We'll link it up uh, in all the show notes and hopefully get a bunch of people to read it, man. So thanks for talking. Yeah, I really appreciate your time today. Thank you very much for having me.